In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning to you all. Dear church, it is good to be with you on this nice, warm, toasty summer morning. Uh, the problem of suffering is something that for everyone uh, we have experienced, even if it is uh, just a scuffed knee as a child on the sidewalk. Um, we have all experienced suffering to some degree in a personal way. For some of us, we have experienced profound suffering, profound loss of loved ones, of friends and family. And the problem of suffering is such a big issue um, that many people have actually walked away from their faith in God because of the suffering they see in the world. And if anybody uh, suffers, any biblical character suffers, aside from Jesus, it is Job. Job experiences great suffering, and so we're going to look at Job today, the story of Job. And I have to tell you right on the front end, if you're expecting answers to why God allows good people to suffer, the Bible actually doesn't give us a straightforward answer to that question. But what the Bible does, and what it does in the book of Job particularly, is gives us a way to respond in the face of suffering. So um, at the beginning of Job, we our passage is from towards the end of Job, um, but at the very beginning of Job, we get the story, we get a little biographical snippet of who Job was. And this is what the Bible says about him. There was once a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Sounds like a uh, Lord of the Rings intro. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him... Seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. You know what that's saying? This dude was righteous and this dude was a baller. He had it all. His life was good. I was looking at pictures online the other day of Shaquille O'Neal's mansion in Windermere for sale right now, $28 million. For Job, no big deal. He had six of those, right? Okay, Job had the Escalade with the system in it. He had everything. Job woke up every morning and he said, I can't wait to live my life today because it is so great. Beautiful family. Community loved him. He served the poor and the orphan and the widow. Great life. Then here's what happens in the story. The camera cuts to a different scene. Cuts to the heavenly realm. And there's this challenger figure. Um, And he goes to God and he says, you know, God, I have been walking around on the earth and I've noticed something. I think that people who are righteous and live righteous lives before you do so because it pays well. They get rewarded by you. And that's the only reason that they actually live lives of virtue and holiness and blamelessness before you. And And God says, have you considered my servant Job? And the challenger figure, who's called Satan in the Old Testament, a little bit of a different uh, Satan than we know in the New Testament. It's just a Hebrew word that means accuser or challenger. The accuser says, yeah, I've seen Job. I'll tell you what, set your hand against him and he will curse you to your face. Right? So there's a challenge he is making. And God says, of course, if you know the story to him, okay, I will allow Job to be afflicted. You cannot take his life from him, but you can afflict him and we'll see what happens. Now, overnight, Mr. Baller, Mr. Righteous Job, overnight everything is ripped away. He loses his family, except for his wife. 
um, he loses his livestock. He loses everything he has. And to make matters worse, he's afflicted with boils that he has to scrape. This is really gross detail in the Bible. He scrapes them with a piece of broken pottery. Yuck. Now, he goes from wealth and prosperity to misery overnight. And for whatever reason, I think it's also part of the affliction, God left his wife there with him. And she says to him, now this is why I say that. This is why I say that. She says to Job in his suffering, you know what she says to him? Curse God and die, you miserable wretch. See, that's what I mean. No, no, no slander against wives in general. This was just not a particularly very nice wife. So, his wife says, curse God and die. What a wife. What a lady. Now, here's how Job responds. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the Bible tells us this. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. That is different than our response to suffering. I blame God when I burn my lip on a hot cup of coffee. Why would you let me go through this? Right? It's different than the way we respond to suffering. Now, as the story goes, Job is in his misery, uh, suffer in suffering, and he has three friends who want to give them, give him their perspective on why his suffering. And their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Clearly, again, they are hobbits from the Shire. And they take turns giving their perspective on the whole thing. So first is Eliphaz, and basically what he says in a number of chapters is, Job, isn't your confidence in God? Don't be so focused on your hardships. Have you ever met someone like this? They downplay what you're going through. They say, uh, just trust God and pray, it'll be okay. And you just want to use them as a punching bag because they have no idea what you're going through. Eliphaz had pat answers. Eliphaz, he thinks that the obvious answer to Job's problem is that Job has unwittingly sinned and brought God's judgment against him. And he says, you know, you need to just figure out what you did and uh, admit your mistake and repent to God. See, Job is, or uh, Eliphaz is the fundamentalist who blames hurricanes on the immorality of a city, right? He's that guy, okay? Now, next is Bildad. And he says to Job, basically, God is so great, we can't understand him. Okay, God is so great, we can't understand him. Really, Job, your suffering isn't all that big of a deal to God. Because he's just too great to be worried about it. And then he basically says the same thing as Eliphaz. He says, you have sinned against God clearly because God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. Figure out what it is that you did and repent of it and ask God's forgiveness and you'll be restored. You see, Bildad is a philosopher who has likes to think big thoughts about God, but in so doing, he actually downplays and demeans humanity. Then we have Zophar. He's the best friend of them all. He says to Job, you know what, Job? You actually deserve worse than what God has done to you. You deserve worse because you're worse of a sinner than you think. You just don't realize it yet. See, he's a moralist. Zophar is a moralist. He is like the others and he says, repent and God will surely restore you. Great friends. So what is the issue going on in the book of Job? What is it asking us to wrestle with? The issue is that God's policies... God's ways are on trial. God's ways are on trial, and they are on trial, they are being questioned from two different angles. And the first is the angle that Job's friends give us, because they say, 
they live by something called the retribution principle. And that says that the righteous are always rewarded and the wicked are always punished. So if you're suffering, you're wicked. So figure it out what you did and become righteous again. And then we get the perspective of Job, who the entire time, by the way, is saying, I am upright, I am blameless, I have not sinned, you guys are wrong, I have not done anything to make God mad. And Job demands an answer from God. He wants to have his case heard in the courts of the Almighty. I am blameless, I have not sinned, why is this happening to me? Here's what he says in chapter 10, I loathe my life, I will give free utterance to my complaint, I will speak in the bitterness of my soul, I will say to God, do not condemn me, let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the schemes of the wicked? You know that I am not guilty. You see, Job questions God's policies in this way. He thinks that it is unjust for God to allow the righteous to suffer. Those are the two angles. Those are the two policies and the ways of God that are on trial in the book of Job, that God should always punish the wicked and reward the righteous, and that it's unjust for God to allow the righteous to suffer. So it raises questions for us. Does God only bless the righteous? Does God always bless the righteous and, and only punish the wicked? Can we equate our own suffering with some wrong we've done, some sin we've committed? Why does experience seem to suggest that this is not the case? Are God's ways trustworthy? Is he running the world fairly? You see, all of these questions are about God. And the book of Job, the story of Job, is actually not so much about Job as it is about God. In God's character, and God's ways, how he runs the world. So today we heard from chapter 38, which is toward the end of the story. And Job has been going on and on and on about his blamelessness and from his perspective that this is completely unjust and he wants God to hear him out. And then the Lord appears, it says, out of the whirlwind and... He says, and we, you know, we read this kind of like um, John Wayne. We think God comes out and he says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without now? You know, we read that like God is some, some, some bad boy cowboy telling Job. But he's not actually being apathetic to Job. He's giving him a different perspective. He says, Job, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man and I will question you. And you shall declare to me, where were you? Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy. And Job, Job is standing there. Ah, oh, well, I, uh, right? You see, it's not that God is apathetic to Job's suffering. This doesn't tell us that God is indifferent to human suffering. He's giving Job a series of questions to pull Job into a greater perspective than what he has currently experiencing. He's showing him a wider and far more vast perspective that he's failed to consider. He says, Job, you're asking the wrong questions. You're thinking about this whole thing all wrong. God is saying this. Job, your understanding of the world and of my ways is infinitesimally small. It's like a grain of sand absorbed in the ocean. He says, my wisdom is infinite. I laid the foundations of the cosmos, the expanses. My ways are incomprehensible. They're inscrutable to human beings. 
Job, you're making your own virtue and your limited understanding of the world the basis for how you assess my actions and my ways. And he says, but you can't assess me in such a way. You see, this is not giving us a picture of God as unapproachable. It's not telling us that we should never question God or ask him why we're suffering or pray to be relieved of our sufferings. Indeed, the Bible tells us in many places that we should pray for just that. It's asking us to change our perspective. It's telling us that we cannot assess God's ways based on how we think he should be running the world. It's telling us we won't always be able to make sense of our suffering. Sometimes we will, and sometimes we won't. The story challenges us to trust God rather than try to figure him out. It asks us to trust him radically. It calls us to a place of humility and surrender in the arms of a good heavenly father. Now, here's Job's response. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What humility in the midst of suffering. Lord, I don't even know what I was saying. You're right. See, his perspective changes. And Job remains faithful in the midst of his suffering, right? At the beginning of the book, it said, in all of this, Job did not sin or accuse God of wrongdoing. He remains faithful, and the story tells us that God restores his life to him overabundantly, more than what he even had before he lost it all. Now, I said that God is not apathetic to suffering. How do we know that? How do we know that God is not up there, ignorant of our suffering, that he just doesn't care? Because the God of the Bible understands suffering better than any of us. Because he entered human flesh. And he felt the pain of whips and a crown of thorns and nails being driven through his hands as he died for the sins of the world. He died slowly and unjustly so that we could live a life of peace with him. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that, that God came into the world to save sinners so that they could have a relationship with him, that the gospel is God's ultimate answer to suffering. It's God's ultimate answer to suffering. See, suffering is about the fear of total loss, that we will lose everything. It's ultimately, fundamentally about the fear of death. And you see, if you are in Christ, there will never be a total loss for you. No matter what, because he has won your eternal salvation by his own suffering. So we need not ever fear total loss. That no matter what we are going through in this life, death will not have the last say in our lives. Thanks be to God. You see, the God of Christianity identifies with human suffering and he's present in the midst of it. He's present in the midst of it. It's why St. Paul, who is in the midst of suffering, as we heard from our passage today, he can say this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. See, one reason that we struggle with the problem of suffering is because we think wrongly about the purpose of life. 
we think wrongly. The world has said that the purpose of life is happiness and contentment and material well-being and wealth and prosperity and enjoying everything you can in this world before it's too late. But you see, in the Bible, that is not the purpose of life. The purpose of life, the ultimate purpose of life is to know God and to enjoy him forever. That's the purpose of life, to to know God. And when you know God, you know him eternally. You're going to have eternal joy with him for all of eternity in a new creation where there is no more suffering or death. So if you have that hope, it gives you a new perspective on temporary suffering. There, um, The gift of knowing Jesus, the gift of knowing Jesus who is eternal life, it's incommensurable with any earthly happiness. I want to tell you a quick story um, that I read. This is written by a man named Tom who used to do uh, nursing home visitations. And Tom tells a story about meeting a particular elderly lady in this nursing home. And he says, as I neared the end of the hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek and it had pushed her nose to one side, dropped one eye and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been bedridden, blind, nearly deaf and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. And one Mother's Day, he took a flower to Mabel. And he gave it to her and he said, Happy Mother's Day, Mabel. And she thanked him and she made an attempt at smelling it. And she said, You know, Tom, I can't see this. Could I give it to someone else? Would you push me around the home until I find someone? And so he said, Of course, Mabel. And he pushed her down the hallway and she found someone else to give the flower to. And she said, Here, this is from Jesus. Later in that day, Tom asked Mabel, he said, Mabel, what do you think about as you lie here all day in this home? And she said, Tom, I think about my Jesus. And he said, what do you think about Jesus? And she said this, I think how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. Friends, what a faith in the midst of suffering. What a Job-like Commitment to faithfulness. So what does it mean for our lives in the here and now? What does it have to say to us? What does this profound story from the book of Job have to say for our lives? What does it teach us? As I said, it doesn't really give us an answer to human suffering or why God sometimes does allow us to suffer. But there's three things in particular. There's three things in particular that we can do as we deal with suffering. And the first is this. Know that your suffering is not necessarily a result of wrong behavior. Right? The book of Job makes that clear. Job did not sin against God and get punished for it. If you are suffering, it doesn't mean that God is mad at you, that God has it out for you. Number two is this. When we suffer and everything in us wants to question God, Accuse him of being unjust like Job did. Maybe even walk away from him. We have to cling to him. If even by a thread. Pray. He's there. 
in C.S. Lewis's famous book, The Screwtape Letters, which is a fictional um, story about a, um, there are letters written from a senior demon to his nephew demon, from Uncle Screwtape to his nephew Wormwood. And he's trying to tell him how to take the Christian faith away from people. And they have a particular patient that they are working on who is new to the Christian faith. And they're having a conversation and Screwtape says to him, um, you're probably wondering why doesn't God make his presence known to his people more? sensibly sometimes. He says, you know, he does this at the beginning of their walk with him to give them some support and some incentive to keep pursuing him in prayer. But then he says this, sooner or later, he withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. Then he says this, It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. You see, in our suffering, we are called to perseverance. The Bible tells us that perseverance and suffering builds character. It builds our trust in God. It challenges us to ask ourselves, do I love and want God for God and not what he can give me? Number three is this. This one is going to sound crazy and it should. Number three is this. We can praise God in the midst of our suffering. We can praise God in the midst of our suffering. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are out doing public ministry and they cast a demon out of a girl and they're causing a ruckus. And so the authorities take them in and it says they were dealt many blows and thrown in prison. What did they do next? Question God's injustice, affirm their own blamelessness, decide that atheism was a better path for them. This is what the Bible says. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Covered in their own blood, open wounds from the beatings, in pain, physically in pain, for preaching the gospel. And they're singing to God. These guys are nuts. And we could be too in the midst of our suffering. Friends, our suffering sometimes is it's inexplicable. We feel the absence of God. We don't get answers that we hope for and ask for. Sometimes he answers our prayers and miraculously heals, and sometimes he's quiet. And the Bible doesn't give us a specific answer for why, but it asks us to look at the Lord who suffered on our behalf and to know that he knows what it's like to suffer and to take his hand and to trust him in the midst of the deepest suffering. And through that, the promise is that we will grow closer to him and we will become like him. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our God of glory, you are infinite in your wisdom. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. And your ways are higher than your ways and our thoughts than our thoughts. And sometimes it is so hard for us to surrender to that and to let you be you. Lord, you call us to cry out to you in our suffering and sometimes we don't know why. It seems that you are silent. 
But your word shows us that we shouldn't assume it's because we've done something wrong and we should not assume that you are not with us in the midst of it. So Lord, we ask that in and through your son as we draw closer to him, the one who suffered on our behalf, that we would learn how to suffer well and to follow him faithfully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.